that is a hot topic, and it's a controversial one in many respects. You know, one reason is that there are about 2,000 scientific articles published each year on soy foods. So you think over the past 20 or 30 years, there's about 50,000 articles. And if you cherry pick the data, you're able to make a convincing argument for just about anything you want to say. But what's important is to look at the totality of the evidence. And soybeans are higher in protein than other beans. And the quality of the protein is better than the quality of all other plant proteins. A lot going for it just on the basis of its nutrient content. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate you raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 34 of season 4, number 229 overall. And today we will be talking about soy. Is it safe? Is it healthy? Or can this little legume do all kinds of damage to your body? This is a fierce debate that has been raging for years. Long-held beliefs will say that soy can lead to everything from breast cancer in women to actually causing breasts to grow among men. And people are being advised coast to coast and around the world, and not just from their friends or some random stranger on Twitter, they're being advised not to eat soy from trusted doctors and medical professionals. But on the other side of the equation, you also have a growing chorus of people, including other doctors and dietitians, who say that study after study have proven the health benefits of soy. They say that those benefits are stellar and that soy is nothing to be afraid of. And they tout soy's health benefits, including lowering the risk of cancer. So where does the truth lie? Well, today I will be speaking with a gentleman whose team has just gathered data from hundreds of studies on this very topic, and they have come up with the definitive answers to soy's most talked about myths. So today we will be getting an answer to the following. Does soy cause cancer? Can it lead to infertility? Will it affect the thyroid? Is it safe for children to eat? And can soy strip away a man's masculinity. Well, after pouring through an encyclopedia's worth of studies with a team of physicians and toxicologists and dietitians, Dr. Mark Messina believes he has the answers, and he's sharing them with us right now on The Exam Room. New research is taking a closer look at some of the biggest myths surrounding soy. A new study finds that many of those concerns actually stem from studies that were conducted on animals and not humans. And therefore, that data may not be painting the most accurate picture. And joining us on the exam room today is a gentleman who led this new study. He is the executive director of the Soy Nutrition Institute. Mark Messina, PhD, is here with me today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Messina. Oh, thank you for inviting me. 
It's a real pleasure to have you here. And this is a topic that comes up quite a bit, whether we're doing the live Q&As with viewers or we're just taking questions in our mailbag. Everybody always wants to know about soy. There's so much debate surrounding soy that has been so pervasive for so many years. Why do you think it is that soy is such a hot topic? Well, there are a lot of reasons. And, and you're correct. It is a hot topic. And it's a controversial one in many respects. You know, one reason is that there are about 2,000 scientific articles published each year on soy foods. So you think over the past 20 or 30 years, there's about 50,000 articles. And if you cherry pick the data, you're able to make a convincing argument for just about anything you want to say. But what's important is to look at the totality of the evidence and to really focus on the human research, the clinical studies, the observational studies. And when you look at the human research, it's pretty clear that soy can make an important contribution to a healthy diet. And why is it that that animal-based research doesn't necessarily always translate to human results when you could make an argument that we're so closely linked to other primates? Well, I think it's pretty clear. First of all, most of the research has been uh, conducted in rodents and and for all sorts of reasons they're not a good model in general but in, especially because or especially in the case of soy because soy foods contain a rather interesting compound called isoflavones uh, isoflavones account for why so much research has been conducted on soy and it turns out that the animals metabolize isoflavones very differently from humans now Animal studies are a part of the scientific literature, but fortunately, in the case of soy, there are literally hundreds of clinical studies that have evaluated not only benefits, but also safety, and also hundreds of observational studies that have looked at those endpoints. So we really have a wealth of information upon which we can make conclusions about the health effects of soy based on the human research. All right. So you said isoflavones, and I'm sure that there are a number of people listening or watching this right now. They're like, what the heck is an isoflavone? So <laughs> what, what is that? Yeah. It, isoflavones are a type of molecule that is widely distributed within the plant kingdom, but it's found in uniquely high amounts in soybeans. And isoflavones are classified as plant estrogens, and we can certainly get into that. So they're referred to as, as phytoestrogens. And because of the high isoflavone content of soy foods, more than 30 years ago, I decided to focus my entire career on soy because there was so much interest in the role that these isoflavones may have in reducing risk of certain types of cancers, reducing bone loss in postmenopausal women, reducing risk of, of prostate cancer. So they're very, very interesting. Unfortunately, Many times people equate isoflavones, the phytoestrogens in soy, with the hormone estrogen, and that's, they are not the same, and that's why some people have misinterpreted the scientific information. And we're going to talk about your study, which was published in the journal Critical Reviews in Food Science and Nutrition. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. But before we look at that, I want to talk a little bit about the benefits that come with soy. You were scratching the surface there a little bit, but soy is really packed with protein. That's got to get a big thumbs up from you. Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big protein guy. I can, I can say that for sure. And soybeans are higher in protein than other beans. And the quality of the protein is better than the quality of all other plant proteins. 
Soybeans provide uh, healthy fat. They provide both essential fatty acids. They're loaded with vitamins and minerals, and they're a good source of fiber. So soy has a lot going for it just on the basis of its nutrient content. Of course, I decided to focus on soy because of its role in chronic disease prevention, independent of its nutrient content. And by the way, the protein in soy is not only high quality, but it actually directly lowers blood cholesterol levels. It received a health claim from the Food and Drug Administration more than 20 years ago because of that ability. And for the let's let's talk a little bit now about your study for the context of this. Are we talking about whole soy or are we talking about more processed food that has what's called a soy protein isolate in it? We looked at everything as long as it was we made a decision. And let me point out, there are nine other authors on this. So 10, 10 and together, it's an international team, folks from Europe, folks from Japan, folks from from Canada with a variety of different expertise. Um, and so we decided to look only at the clinical studies and the observational studies because, as I indicated, there's so much research. So much research has been conducted on soy. There was no need to look at the uh, animal studies. So, in the observational studies, the population studies that have been conducted in Japan and China, of course, we're looking at the effects of foods like tofu and miso and soy milk. In a lot of the clinical trials, we're actually looking at either the isolated isoflavones, those phytoestrogens, or concentrated sources of soy protein. Now, unfortunately, relatively few clinical studies have actually intervened with the traditional soy foods. So you can almost count on maybe two hands the number of studies that have intervened with something like tofu. Because when you do a clinical trial, ideally, you don't want the participants in the study to know whether they're in the active group or the soy group or the controlled group. And if you're giving something like tofu, it's it's hard for the participants not to recognize what they're consuming. So for, for a lot of reasons, ease of standardization, compliance, usually the clinical trials intervene with the concentrated sources of soy protein or isoflavone pills. All right. Now, previous evidence has shown that soy can negatively impact the endocrine system. That's what that evidence shows. It can cause all kinds of health problems. So I want to go down some of these conditions that you and and the other researchers looked at with this particular study. Let's go ahead and start with thyroid function. In terms of soy consumption and thyroid function, what did you discover? Yeah, well, this relationship, soy and thyroid function, has actually been investigated for about 100 years. The first study that I know of was published in 1933. And what we found was that regardless of the amount of soy you're giving in the clinical studies, and these are the studies, of course, that carry the most weight within the scientific community. In the clinical studies, it's very clear that soy does not affect levels of the two major thyroid hormones, often referred to as T3 and T4. Even if you have a compromised thyroid function, the evidence doesn't suggest that soy is going to be a problem. So that was an area that we were able to make a definitive conclusion about because of all the clinical studies that have been uh, conducted. So we're very pleased to be able to report that soy has no effect on thyroid function. And by the way, that's also the conclusion of the European Food Safety Authority and the German Research Foundation. They reached uh, those conclusions in 2015 and 2018. 
So basically, it's pretty hard to refute that data at this point. Absolutely. Let's talk about, uh, oh boy, this is the big one, estrogen levels. I think that uh, women are concerned for health reasons. Guys are concerned because they're worried that it will make them less of a man if they uh, eat soy because of the estrogen levels in there. So uh, the belief is that if you eat soy, you're going to have a surge of estrogen in your body and that can be potentially dangerous. But what did you all discover in the more than 400 uh, studies that you looked at? Yeah, let me just say, this is a topic that's both of personal and professional interest to me, because I eat soy on a, on a regular, daily basis for that matter. And, and so, again, the evidence was very, very clear. This issue came to the attention of, of the public, largely as a result of, that, of an article that was published in a popular men's bag, magazine about 10 years ago, where they suggested that soy may feminize men. It's interesting that magazine has now actually re reversed their position and had an article recently talking about tofu being the new king of protein. So we looked at the effect of soy and these isoflavones on testosterone levels in men. And we also looked at the effect on estrogen levels. And although estrogen is commonly referred to as a female reproductive hormone, men make estrogen as well. And in fact, older men make more estrogen than older women do. We saw no effect of soy on testosterone levels. We saw no effect of soy on estrogen levels. Uh, we saw no effect in three studies of soy on sperm or semen parameters. And also, although we didn't actually look at these data, it was published previously. If you're wanting to bulk up, build muscle in response to, you know, resistance exercise. Soy is an, a great choice. A recent statistical analysis of nine studies found that soy performed as well as whey protein, which is one of the proteins in milk, and that's often considered to be uh, the, the gold standard. And there's even this notion that soy can cause man boobs, which the technical term is gynecomastia. Two studies, really well done studies. One was three years in duration, no evidence at all of any kind of comestia. Yeah, that is a uh, really pervasive bro science, uh, as, yeah. as Dr. Jim Loomis would like to say here on the show. You go to the gym, you just talked about bulking up. And I mean, guys shy away from soy like, you know, it's the, it's the absolute worst thing in the world because they... They want their pecs to grow, but not necessarily in that fashion. So basically, <laughs> what, what you're saying here is that no matter how much soy you eat, it's not going to cause your chest to grow if you're a guy in a manner that you don't want it to. Yeah, that, that's correct. And, and let me point out that the conclusions about the superiority of whey, which again is one of the proteins in, in cow's milk, is actually based on short-term studies that measure muscle protein synthesis over a three-hour period. They're not based on long-term studies that actually look at gains in muscle mass and strength. And of course, that's what matters because protein synthesis occurs for 24 hours after you exercise. And when you look at the relevant studies that have measured gains in muscle mass and strength, you see that soy performs as well as whey protein and other animal proteins for that matter. You mentioned fertility a minute ago. I'm curious, did you get the opportunity to look at soy's effect on ovulation in women? Yeah, we did. And that that's an interesting topic because that topic received a lot of attention back in the mid-1990s, 94, 95. 
there hasn't been a lot of research published over the past 10 years. It does look like soy may actually increase the length of the menstrual cycle by one day. Now, longer cycles are actually associated with a decreased risk of breast cancer. So that could be an advantage. It's very speculative, but it's a possible advantage. But there was no effect on ovulation. And, you know, of course, it's, it's not really hard data, and we didn't talk about this, but if you look at the populations of soy food-consuming countries around the world, it would be hard to draw the conclusion that soy adversely impacted fertility. And have you had the opportunity to look at any research surrounding uh, soy's effect on menopause? Um, I know in particular, Dr. Barnard wrote in his latest book, Your Body in Balance, uh, there was a woman who shared her story anecdotally about how she suffered from horrible, horrible, horrible hot flashes, but then introduced soy into her diet. And suddenly her body just started being able to regulate those hot flashes a lot better. It was no longer an issue for her. Is that anything that you were able to look at in this study or anything that you've heard? I've been involved with that research and the hypothesis or the notion that soy may alleviate hot flashes was actually proposed in 1992. So it's been about 30 years. The first clinical study to evaluate the hypothesis was was conducted and published in 1995. And in 2012, I was part of a co-author of a statistical analysis where we looked at 13 different clinical trials that evaluated the effects of soy or the isoflavones on hot flashes. And we found about a 60% reduction in the frequency of hot flashes. That is how often or how many hot flashes occur per day. And also about a 50 to 60% reduction in the severity of hot flashes, how bothersome the hot flashes are. And the evidence suggests that you need about two servings of soy per day to get this benefit. A serving is uh, pretty easy to incorporate into the diet. It's a a cup of soy milk, a half a cup of tofu, an ounce of, of soy nuts. About two servings per day should work. Now, let's talk about soy's effect here on the risk of breast cancer. A lot of women are concerned that, especially postmenopausally, if they have soy in their diet, they're at a higher likelihood to develop breast cancer. This is another uh, issue that you were able to look at with this study. What was your conclusion there? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because in many respects, this might be the most important topic because I think if you were going to point to one area or one concern that did the most damage to the reputation of soy, it was it would be the breast cancer issue, which is sort of ironic because in many respects, the modern focus on the health effects of soy food began in the early 1990s at the National Cancer Institute, where they became interested in looking at the role that soy may have in preventing breast cancer, reducing the risk of developing breast cancer. Uh, Nevertheless, in the mid to late 1990s, uh, rodent research was public, suggesting that soy or the compounds in soy could stimulate the growth of existing breast tumors. And so at the time, we really didn't have any human research to refute those animal studies. So I think it was perfectly appropriate that the medical community took a very cautious approach to women with breast cancer or women at high risk of breast cancer consuming soy. Now, fortunately, beginning in 2009, we started to see the human research published. And not only did that research suggest or show 
conflict with the animal studies, it actually suggested that consuming soy after a diagnosis of breast cancer may be beneficial. So, for example, you had a statistical analysis published in 2013 involving five studies, two from the U.S. and three from China, involving over 11,000 women with breast cancer. And it found higher soy consumption, about one to two servings per day, after diagnosis of breast cancer, actually reduced the risk of recurrence and the risk of dying from the disease. So again, we, we've actually gone from a situation in the 1990s where the animal studies were raising concern to a situation today where the human research is suggesting possible benefit. And if you look at the clinical studies, and there have been about 20 clinical studies, they are completely supportive of safety. So even if you give large amounts of soy and you take a biopsy of the breast before and after soy consumption, you see no adverse effects on breast tissue. And the position of the American Cancer Society the American Institute for Cancer Research, the World Cancer Fund, the Canadian Cancer Society, is that breast cancer patients can safely consume soy foods. And again, the European Food Safety Authority and the German Research Foundation concluded that the isoflavones in soy do not adversely affect breast tissue. Some heavy hitting organizations that you just mentioned there, but still, you look at this information that just began uh, became public in two thousand and nine. That's when these studies started to come out. That's only twelve years ago. Do you feel like there is adequate uh, amounts of information to go ahead and firmly say, yeah, you know what, we were wrong about soy in the nineteen nineties? We're talking only about twelve years worth of studies now. Yeah, well, that's a lot of years because when you look at because because they're human studies versus the, the rodent studies. So I do not claim, despite there being some evidence to, um, in support of this, that soy will benefit breast cancer patients, but I think it's perfectly reasonable and consistent with the scientific literature to say that women with breast cancer can't consume soy. And I think also it's important to recognize that, you know, many women are going to live with their breast cancer for their entire life. They're not going to necessarily die of this disease. And um, so you need to consume a healthful diet. And I think soy can be part of that diet. And it may be particularly beneficial for a postmenopausal women. We've already talked about the possibility or the likelihood that soy can alleviate a menopausal hot flashes. There's more speculative evidence suggesting that soy can reduce bone loss in postmenopausal women and maybe directly improve the health of the arteries. So, you know, soy is a really good food to add to the diet just on the basis of its nutrient content, high protein, healthy fat, vitamins and minerals. Let's talk about another form of cancer, uh, talking about prostate cancer now. What were you able to glean from your research in the connection there? Now, we didn't actually look at prostate cancer because we only looked at safety concerns. And it's in, prostate cancer is an interesting topic because there, in the 1990s and early 2000s, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the possibility that soy could reduce the risk of developing prostate cancer and maybe even be a treatment for the disease because most prostate cancer is very slow growing. So if you could slow the progression of the disease, even just a little bit, men will end up dying with their tumor rather than because of their tumor. You know, and so I, I wrote a lot about 
prostate cancer during the first part of my career. Unfortunately, I would have to say that evidence over the past 10 years has not been very supportive of the notion that soy reduces risk of developing prostate cancer. You know, it's well recognized that in Japan, breast cancer rates are low, and we think that soy may be one factor. Prostate cancer rates are also low in Japan and other soy food consuming countries. It's just not clear to me, unfortunately, very disappointing that the evidence shows that soy can serve as a treatment for the disease or, or can serve as a, a pre- preventative role. Let's switch gears now and talk about children. There is some concern that a lot of parents have that giving soy to their kid can plant the seed for health challenges later on in life. You had the opportunity also, I believe, to look at this in your study. What's the connection there between the health of children and consumption of soy? Yeah, that's, again, another interesting topic. But this is a topic where the the authors and I flagged... um, flag the area as being an area that needs more research. And that's really not surprising when you think about it, because clinical studies are very difficult to conduct. Uh, Compliance is is always an issue. And so you think about the difficulty of conducting clinical studies with six and seven-year-olds. So we need more research in that area. However, the evidence that is available is, again, supportive of soy being able to contribute to a healthy diet of children. And one of the potential very, very exciting benefits, and one that probably of all the proposed benefits of soy, this is the one I'm most excited about. And that's the notion that consuming soy early in life may reduce breast cancer risk later on in life. I mentioned that um, I was working at the National Cancer Institute back in the early 1990s, and I entered the soy field because of my belief that soy could reduce the risk of developing breast cancer. I still think that's true, but for more than 20 years, I've believed in order for soy to reduce breast cancer risk, it has to be consumed during childhood and or during the teenage years. And the evidence suggests as little as one serving per day may reduce breast cancer risk later on in life by anywhere from 25 to 50%. Now, it is completely speculative. I mean, there's good data in support of it, but it's still speculative. But my perspective is that because soy is a very nutritious food. We've already talked about that. And it's easy to incorporate into the diet. And all you need in theory is one serving per day to reduce breast cancer risk. I strongly recommend that all girls consume at least one serving per day. What we know is that it does not appear that soy affects uh, age uh, puberty onset. There was a study conducted by Loma Linda University showing that even girls who consume large amounts of soy enter puberty at the same age as girls that don't consume soy. And we also know from a handful of studies that soy protein in children lower blood cholesterol levels. Nevertheless, I'd like to see a lot more research involving children. Is it your expectation that as time marches on, maybe 10 years from now, a decade from now, we'll have more concrete research to that effect? We're going to have more research. Um, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to resolve some of these remaining areas. But I do want to emphasize that really when you look at the clinical and human data, the evidence is very clear. These concerns can be almost without exception. I'm I'm trying to even think of an exception. None none comes to mind except for the fact that at about three out of every 1,000 adults are allergic to soy. So we really do have a lot of data uh, to go forward. And I think that's 
why I'm so glad that this paper was published, because it lays out the information in a way that really hasn't been done before. And as uh, we conclude here, let's do a little bit of housekeeping, wrap things up. What else uh, were you able to look at at the paper in terms of health outcomes and the benefits that come with soy, or at least shattering some of the myths that are out there right now? Yeah, one of the main ones, again, if you look at hormone levels in premenopausal women, postmenopausal women, no effect on estrogen levels. We looked at endometrial cancer because that's a cancer that is affected by the hormone estrogen. Uh, If anything, the data suggests that soy may reduce uh, the risk of developing endometrial cancer. And then the other issue was uh, soy consumption during pregnancy. Of course, in Asian countries, soy is consumed during pregnancy. These isoflavones probably do make their way down to the fetus. Um, But based on several lines of evidence, we reached a conclusion that they would not have any adverse effects on the offspring. So basically, we were pretty comfortable with every area that we looked at. And again, I want to emphasize that there were 10 authors, uh, toxicologists, nutritionists, you know, physicians, and we looked very carefully at the data. We systematically identified the scientific literature so we could show that we did not cherry pick the data. How long did this take you to do? I mean, this sounds like it's a it's a really in depth project that you conducted. Yeah, it was it was two years. Yeah, <laughs> it was a long I bet. time. I bet. I'm I'm surprised it was that little. I mean, I you you would not have got me to raise an eyebrow if you said five. I mean, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies. So, uh, even though you had a, a whole team, you had ten plus people. I mean, that's that's still a heck of a lot of work. Yeah, I'm glad it's done. I bet you are. Hey, hey, this interview is done now, too. Are you glad about that? I am indeed, but thanks anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Mark Messina, thank you so very much, my friend. Thank you. In the episode notes, you will find a link to Dr. Messina's study, as well as our own information on soy. You know, our group here at the Physicians Committee has also been studying soy for some time and collectively also giving it two thumbs up when it comes to your health. Lee Crosby, dietitian extraordinaire, a.k.a. the Fiber Queen, she is among the most enthusiastic when it comes to soy. And what makes this so spectacular is the fact that Lee has had her own scare when it comes to breast health. And despite that, she is still a firm believer in the benefits that soy can offer. Let's switch gears now and check in at the exam room news desk. There is promising new research for healthy hearts today that has the medical field humming. A study published in the American Journal of Preventative Cardiology shows that people who eat a vegetarian diet are 30% less likely to die from ischemic heart disease than those who eat a traditional diet. Ischemic heart disease is more commonly known as coronary artery disease, which is a narrowing of the arteries, most commonly due to a buildup of plaque. Now, this study confirms previous studies that show that a vegetarian diet can offer a wide range of heart-healthy benefits, including lower weight, cholesterol, and blood pressure. 
Now, you compare that to a traditional diet that includes animal products. Well, those diets are often high in fat and cholesterol that can put a strain on the heart. The study's authors also say that a vegetarian diet should be considered as a cost-effective way to help prevent heart disease among those most at risk. And yes, in case you were wondering, completely vegan diets were included among the 30% reduction figure in the study. Important findings given the fact that more than 18 million people over the age of 20 have ischemic heart disease according to the CDC. In fact, that is the most common form of heart disease, one that kills nearly 366,000 people a year. That's 1,002 people every single day. 1,002. And this is completely indiscriminate here. Completely indiscriminate. Heart disease can strike anyone, man or woman, black or white, Hispanic or Asian, Native American. It does not matter. Heart disease can present a devastating risk. But at the same time, studies like this one show that everyone also has the tools in their toolbox already to help prevent it. 1,002 people do not need to die in the U.S. every single day. This is a trend that can be reversed. So let's get this message out there. Let's talk about this and let's save some lives. And you can help us do that. You can help us to save lives by helping us get this message out there, by subscribing to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever shows are available. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review because every new subscription and five-star rating helps to promote this podcast a little bit more. And the more promotion we get, the easier it becomes for people who need this information the most to find it. And that is why just by hitting that subscribe button can help to save a life. And lastly today, if you are ready to give your own heart a checkup, and you want some one-on-one help to improve your health, well, you can work with a team of plant-based doctors and dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center who all practice exactly what it is that they preach. Set up a telemedicine visit for yourself today by calling 202-527-7500 or log on to barnardmedical.org for a full list of states where services are available. And for today... That's going to do it. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Mark Messina for helping us clear up some soy confusion. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>